Well, if you don't know, my name is Aaron. Um, I'm one of the pastors here, and uh, so pumped to have you. In the middle of summer, uh, you guys are like the diehards, you know, you're not out on vacation like most everybody else, it seems. Uh, I'm not on vacation either, um, not that I'm bitter, but I'm glad that you are here. And we have, so we've been um, in this series called Follow Me, and, and we've been looking at what it means to follow Jesus, some of the implications, some myth-busting, uh, you name it. And, and one of the coolest things, well, I just got to tell you, one of the coolest things for me um, in pastoring a church like Mosaic uh, is that, you know, when I hear people talk about our community, and they, what I often hear is, like, it's very come as you are. You know, wherever you're at, whatever you believe or don't believe, like, you're going to be embraced at Mosaic. You're going to feel welcome at Mosaic. I hope that's true. That's our heartbeat. Um, and one of the coolest things is I get the opportunity of, uh, and as well as I know many of you do, getting to connect with people that are kind of all over the spiritual spectrum. Um, a lot of people who didn't grow up in church, they don't know, like, the unwritten rules and the secret handshakes and the weird T-shirts and all that stuff. Um, and some of them, for the very first time, are asking questions like, what does it mean to follow Jesus? Right? What might it look like? Uh, in my life. For some people, they're asking that for the first time. For some of us, we're asking that for the first time in a very long time, uh, your first time back to church. And, and it, it, it's beautiful, and I love that. But it can create some confusion uh, when those people run into others who grew up in churches that, that are not like that, right? there, where there's kind of like this performance standard, and, and you, you got to do that first before you get in. Right? So we had a, we had a gal um, who's a part of our community who got connected here a couple years ago shortly after we started. And uh, she had a, a rough story, you know, a lot of stuff kind of behind her in her, in her wake, a lot of bad decisions um, that she had made, um, some serious consequences, you know, a lot of them uh, being with, you know, involving men. And, and somewhere along the line, it seemed like she bought into this lie that, that she was unlovable, um, that she was going to receive any love like she needed to, to give, you know, parts of herself away, and it was kind of this transactional thing, like all love, it's just you, you get what you give, so, so it's, you know, it's, it's conditional. And then she came here, and she met you, and she was listening and, and began to consider uh, this person of Jesus and the message of Jesus, uh, the unadulterated grace message of Jesus, and in the process, just bumped into Jesus. Jesus became more than just an idea, uh, actually became real to her. And she got to a point where she was so excited and so overwhelmed uh, by the love of God that she thought, you know what, I am going to, I want to follow Jesus. And so she messaged me. She said, I want to be baptized, you know. And so she's thrilled. I'm thrilled. We're talking about what this means. Um, but one of, the, one of the things that, that happened in this time, again, this is a gal who's brand new to this thing called church, brand new to Jesus, taking her first steps following Jesus, uh, is that she was, uh, at the time, uh, playing for a lingerie arena football league. Um, it, it's what it sounds like. It's girls playing tackle football in their lingerie. Guys, take my word for it. Don't Google it. It exists. All right? So she's doing this and decides she wants to get baptized. And somebody that she works with, right, is kind of a, the other kind of traditional church cloth uh, where it's like, you know, you got, you got to fall in the line, especially before you start saying Jesus' name out loud or doing something public like get baptized. So he pulls her aside and he says, you have no business getting baptized. Right? And he says to her, he says, you need to get your life together and start looking a lot more Christian right before you get baptized. Right? So me and this guy had words, as you can about imagine. And we went back and forth, and, and her and I you know, sat down and talked. And, you know, and, and I lovingly shared, you know what, Jesus might have some things to say about, you know, if you're asking, um, you know, playing football mostly naked in front of men. Um, you know, we can talk about that. But 
you got to know that the message of grace, the gospel of grace, is that you don't change everything, fix everything, get everything cleaned up and come to Jesus. You come to Jesus and you start to journey. And he starts fixing, he starts healing, he starts changing. All that stuff is to come. But if you want to follow Jesus, the invitation is for you. And so we, just for the record, we baptized her and it was awesome. Um, yeah, but, okay, but the story, right, the reason I share this is it did raise a very, a very good question. And the question is, how good is good enough? How good is good enough? Where, where's the line? Right, because what this guy was telling her is, there is a line. And, and if you want to, you're on the outside, and if you want to be on the inside, there's some things that you need to do first. So where's the line? How good is good enough? And that's what I want to talk about uh, this morning, as it relates to outsiders, and as it relates to insiders. And I want to do something a little bit different. The last few weeks, we've looked at uh, the beginning of the journey of following Jesus, right? The invitation, these moments of invitation, uh, and some of the things they reveal about the nature of following Jesus and what it involves and who's invited. Uh, this morning, I want to actually fast forward and look at the end. And I want to look at the end of Jesus's life. And it passes a scripture where we're introduced to a handful of outsiders, different kinds of outsiders, and very unlikely people as well. And look at what that might suggest to us uh, about what it means to follow Jesus and what it means to respond to Jesus. Because the thing is, a lot of people bumped into Jesus in his lifetime and in his ministry. A lot of people heard him teach. A lot of people saw miracles. Most of them missed him. Some of them rejected him. Some of them just didn't get him. And then we have this passage at the very end of Luke, right, the very end of Jesus' life. Most of the disciples are gone. They bailed. And then Luke gives us these four different people who respond to Jesus in a different way. And that's what I want to look at this morning. So I'm going to read for you, to begin with, uh, out of Luke chapter 23. Um, I don't have verses on the screen for you this morning because I scrapped my message yesterday. Um, so, yeah, because I felt like this is where we need to go. This is what we need to have. So I'm, just, I'm going to read this to you, uh, and then we're going to draw some things out. So this is Luke chapter 23. Um, at this point, uh, Jesus has been arrested. Uh, he's been stripped. He's been beaten. He's being marched to the cross. Uh, and this is what we read. Luke chapter um, 23, beginning in verse 32. Two other men, both criminals, were also led out to be executed. And when they came to the place called the Skull, they crucified him there, along with the criminals, one on his right and one on his left. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. And they divided up his clothes by casting lots. And the people stood watching, and the rulers even sneered at him. They said, he saved others. Let him save himself if he's God's Messiah, the chosen one. And the soldiers also came up. They mocked him too, and they offered him wine vinegar and said, if you're the king of the Jews, save yourself. There's even a note written above him which said, this is the king of the Jews. And one of the crim criminals who hung there hurled insults at him. Aren't you the Messiah? Save yourself and us. But the other criminal rebuked him. He said, don't you fear God since you're under the same sentence? We're punished justly for what we are, we're getting. Right? We're getting what we deserve. But this man has done nothing wrong. And then he said to Jesus, Remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus answered him, Truly I tell you that today you will be with me in paradise. It was then about noon, and darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon, for the sun stopped shining. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two. And Jesus called out with a loud voice, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And when he had said this, he breathed his last. The centurion, seeing what had happened, praised God. And he said, surely this was a righteous man. 
When all the people who had gathered to witness this sight saw what took place, they beat their breasts and went away. But all those who knew him, including the women who had followed him from Galilee, they stood at a distance and they watched these things. Now there was a man named Joseph, a member of the council, a good and upright man who had not consented to their decision and action. And he came from the Judean town of Arimathea, and he himself was waiting for the kingdom of God. So going to Pilate, he asked for Jesus' body. And then he took it, and he wrapped it in linen cloth, and he placed it in a tomb, cut in the rock, one in which no one had yet been laid. It was preparation day, and the Sabbath was about to begin. And then the women who had come with Jesus from Galilee followed Joseph, and they saw the tomb and how his body was laid in it. And then they went home and prepared spices and perfumes. All right, in this passage, we are introduced to a handful of outsiders that I want to draw your attention to. The first is the first thief. All right, there's two different thieves. One mocks Jesus, but one responds in a different way. Right, and we don't know a lot about him, but what we do know is that he has been tried for his crimes He has been found guilty, and he's suffering suffering the same capital punishment that Jesus is. He's an outsider. This thief is what we might call a moral outsider. He's the last person in the world that we would expect for Luke to say, pay attention. This person is responding to Jesus in a way that is worth paying attention to and emulating. But he does that for us. He's a moral outsider. He doesn't fit the bill. He's not a religious person. He's not a moral person. In fact, things are worse than they appear. Because in Jesus' day, stealing wouldn't get you crucified. Just taking something that wasn't yours wouldn't get you killed. Right? These two guys had to be more than thieves. For this capital punishment, they would have had to take an innocent life. Right? So these aren't just thieves. Right? These are murderers who have shed innocent blood in the process of taking that something that did not belong to them. And this is the first person that Luke is showing us is starting to get it. He's the first person that he's drawing our attention to. Right? The last person that we would ever expect. He's a moral outsider. Right, the second person that we are introduced to uh, is the second kind of outsider is a racial outsider. Right, the centurion. We're told that he is a Gentile. Right, and we talked a little bit about this before. But Gentiles weren't even allowed to worship in the temple the way the Jews did. Right, they, they were considered to be unclean. And those good religious types that are really concerned with ceremonial purity, right, they wouldn't eat with them, not guys like him. Right, they wouldn't do business with guys like him. They wouldn't even touch Guys like him. Completely pushed to the outskirts. But Luke says, when the centurion sees Jesus die, he says something. He says that he looks at Jesus and he praised God. Now Luke uses this phrase six times in his gospel. And every time he uses this phrase, that somebody saw something and praised God, it was when they were beginning to perceive the saving power of God. And he says it about the, a, a racial outsider. He's saying he's beginning to get it. So we have a a moral outsider. We have a racial outsider. And then we're introduced to a third kind of outsider. And it's not just an individual. It's actually a group. It's a group of women. And women were, in that time, a different kind of outsider. They were were social outsiders. And we've talked a little bit about this. And it's it's crazy to look back and think. Maybe for some of you it doesn't feel that crazy as you look around at um, certain parts of the world. uh, Maybe even your own experience. Right, but back then, in the social status, women were just above cattle. Right, they were considered property. They couldn't vote, couldn't testify in court. They couldn't speak in an assembly of men. Um, they, they, most of the time, rarely could they work outside of the home. Right, so for a woman to survive, she almost had to attach herself to a man. And by the way, it is worth saying, this is part of what makes Jesus' treatment of women so spectacular. 
Because over and over and over, Jesus takes women and moves them from the outside, from the marginalized, and places them in the assembly of men and lifts them up and says, pay attention. Right? This is what real faith looks like. He does it over and over and over again, completely, completely countercultural. In fact, when you read the Luke in particular, you, can all, you can't really find, it's almost impossible to find a passage of Scripture where a woman comes in contact with Jesus and responds in a wrong or negative or inappropriate way. And so Luke wants us to get something here, that there's something very, very off about this. And he does the exact same thing in this passage. And so we're at the very end of Jesus' life. Jesus is killed. The disciples have scattered. Most of them have either gone home or they've gone into hiding for fear this is going to happen. They're all gone, but there's a group that's still there, and it's not the 12. Right? Judas betrays him. Peter denies him. But it's the women, disciples, who are still there, who are still standing by his side, right? And here again, we find the same kind of pattern going on, where we've got a moral outsider responding to Jesus in a completely different way, right? A racial outsider, a social outsider, right? But then at the very end of this passage, we're introduced to a fourth person, and this one is the most surprising at all, because if you're reading the Gospels and you're paying attention, right, to the kind of people that Jesus is lifting up and honoring and celebrating, and the kinds of people that he's laying into with his words at times, you start to pick up a pattern, Right? You, start to, you start to pick up that there's a certain kind of people, it seems, that God accepts, and there's like certain kinds of people that God rejects, or there's certain kinds of people that God would consider on the inside as far as his love is concerned, and then there's certain people that are on the outside, right? Because over and over and over we find it is, it is the lepers, right? It's the women, uh, it's the, the Samaritans, it's the fallen woman, it's the tax collectors. They're the ones that are celebrated, right? The tax collectors are talked about six times in Luke's gospel. Right? And we talked about tax collectors. These were oppressors. These were liars. They were backstabbers. Detested all six times are positive. Right? Talks over and over and over about women who were social outsiders, pushed the, the margins over and over and over. They're celebrated, but you look at like respected men, powerful men, influential men, successful men, and what we find over and over and over, right, is almost, almost all the way through, Jesus is responding to them in negative ways, right? So you're paying attention. You're like, okay, I'm starting to get it. And then at the very end, we're introduced to the fourth person who Luke celebrates and says, pay attention. Here's a person who's responding to God with courage and faith, and it's the last person in the world that we would think. And we're told it's Joseph of Arimathea, who is a member of the council, right? He's a member of the Sanhedrin, which is like the Supreme Court of the day. This man is like the epitome of power. You know what I mean? Like, he is, he's Donald Trump, right, of the ancient Near East. You know, he, he is respected. He's successful. He is, he is well-known. He is powerful. And just when you start to think, you know what, I'm starting to pick up on the pattern. I'm starting to get it, right? We, we find this. And he gets it. And he gets in. Right? What, what's going on here? I mean, does Jesus really have no principles at all? You know, is, is he playing salvation roulette? Is Luke schizophrenic? Like, what's the deal? Okay, and so this is, this is where I want to land the plane, and this is what we've got to get. Right, that when it comes to, to being inside or being outside, embraced by God, rejected by God, right with God, wrong with God, that it has, it has nothing to do with, with our wealth or poverty. And it has nothing to do with our power or our powerlessness, has nothing to do with our morality or our lack of morality, nothing to do with your moral performance, socioeconomic status, racial background, religious affiliation or commitments, or lack thereof. That it is 100% only unadulterated, 
grace. It is grace, 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 grace. Nothing you do, nothing you earn, nothing you can lose. It is just grace. And it is radical. All right, just look at how else, honestly, how else can you explain, how can we explain how Jesus responds to the thief who's hanging next to him for his crimes? A thief, a murderer, we don't know how many lives he's taken, but at least one. He's at the end of his life. He has made no effort to turn his life around at this point. He has done himself no favors. His life is a train wreck of his own making. He is hanging there for his sin, exposed to the world. There is nothing he can do at this point to better his situation. And then in his last moments, when it is too late to make anything right, he comes to Jesus and just acknowledges, first of all, who Jesus is. He says, when you go into your kingdom, right, you are the king. You are. I am not. He acknowledges his own wrongness, right? He, he turns to the thief. He says, we deserve what we're getting. He doesn't, but we do, right? And then he says, remember me when you're in your kingdom, which, of course, don't remember me in anger. That's not what he's asking. Remember me with resentment or judgment. That's not what he's asking. He's saying, remember me with favor, right? He's radically saying, I don't deserve any saving. So I'm not even going to ask you, unlike the other thief, to save me physically from what's going on. I'm just... I don't deserve, I deserve what I'm getting. I don't deserve saving, but I'm asking you to remember me, right? And save me, not from this, but eternally save me, even though I don't get it. And then, shocking to every one of our inner Pharisees, especially those of us who are like overachievers in Sunday school and Awanas, you saved up your own money and you went on the missions trip, faithful tither, faithful church attender, so offensive and so offensive to Luke's audience, I guarantee you, Jesus says, okay, all is forgiven, and today you'll be with me in paradise. What? I mean, is that amazing? Am I the only person that's just crazy? It doesn't make any religious sense. But that is, that is the gospel. That is the straight-up gospel. Right? It, it is the earth-shattering, eternity-changing words expressed by Paul in Ephesians 2, verses 8 and 9. For it is by grace, it is by grace, by grace, by grace, that you have been saved through faith. And in case you missed it, this is not of yourselves. This is a gift of God. And so, in case you still don't get it, it's not by works, lest no one should boast. Right? So here's the thing. I know what some of you are thinking, especially if you grew up in church. Right? And you're thinking, Aaron, this is the old news, man. I've heard this before. Tell me something I don't know. Right? Because I, I don't think I've ever met a Christian who, if asked, you know, do you know that you're saved by grace? Do you know that God loves you? Who would say, oh, yeah. Yeah, in fact, I've known that for quite some time. But then you watch the way that they live. Lives that are ruled by fear. Right? Afraid of losing what they have. Obsessed with protecting it. Right? Or amassing things for themselves. Our lives characterized at times by bitterness, a need to get even, right? To push other people down so that they can get ahead, right? Lives ruled by anger and resentment, inability or unwillingness to forgive, right? Not lives characterized by love or life or freedom, right? And you got to know, like, if that's you, right? We just got to face the music 
For those of us who maybe have heard this a thousand times, it's very possible that although you've heard this a thousand times, you still don't get it. You still don't get it. You can be an expert on something. You can teach on something. Maybe you're, you know, went to seminary, and you could be up here teaching all of us, but you don't know it. If that's your life, I mean, you might know it here, you know, at some level, but you don't know it here. Right? It's not freeing you to live a life characterized by life and grace and love, generosity. It seems to be crushing you. All right, one of my favorite films um, is Goodwill Hunting. Any Goodwill Hunting fans in the house? Yes, I'm good company. I love you guys. Uh, my favorite film. I love Goodwill Hunting. Right, in Goodwill Hunting, you've got uh, Sean, who's played by Robin Williams, and then you've got Will, who's played by Matt Damon. And if you remember, uh, Will is a genius. He's brilliant, absolutely brilliant. He, his mind is not one in a million. His mind is one in a billion. Walking encyclopedia, creative problem solver. Everybody wants to prop, uh, employ him. Uh, he's a prodigy. Right, but there comes this moment in the film where Sean realizes something about him. And this is what he says. He loves this. He says, you know what occurred to me? He said, you don't have the faintest idea what you're talking about. You've never been out of Boston. Nope. So if I asked you about art, you'd probably give me the skinny on every art book ever written. Michelangelo, you know a lot about him. Life's work, political aspirations, him and the Pope, sexual orientation, the whole works, right? But I bet you can't tell me what it smells like in the Sistine Chapel. You never actually stood there and looked up at that beautiful ceiling. If I asked you about women, you'd probably give me a syllabus of your personal favorites. But you can't tell me what it feels like to wake up next to a woman and feel truly happy. You're a tough kid. I ask you about war, you'd probably throw Shakespeare at me, right? Once more into the breach, dear friends. But you've never been near one. You've never held your best friend's head in your lap and watched him gasp his last breath, looking for you to help. And if I asked you about love, you'd probably quote me a sonnet. But you've never looked at a woman and been totally vulnerable. Known someone you could, who could level you with her eyes. Feeling like God put an angel on earth just for you. Who could rescue you from the depths of hell. And you would know what it's like to be her angel and have that love for her to be there forever. Through anything. Through cancer. You wouldn't know about sleeping, sitting up in the hospital room for two months, holding her hand. <clears throat> because the doctors could see in your eyes that the term visiting hours don't apply to you. You don't know about real loss because the only thing, or that only occurs when you love something more than you love yourself and I doubt you've ever dared to love anybody that much. I look at you and I don't see an intelligent, confident man. I see a cocky, scared kid. But you're a genius, Will. No one denies that. Right? And I love that scene. It's always stuck with me right? because it puts its finger on, the, on this truth Right, that, that we can, you can know a lot of facts about something without ever actually experiencing it for yourself. Or you can be an expert on any given subject. You could be giving the sermon. You may have heard this a thousand times, and you can still only dabble in ideas and theories. Right? And never, as the scriptures say, taste for yourself and see that the Lord is good. Right? So, so I'm just asking, right, just getting honest here. So you know about all about grace. You know all about it, right? That God is crazy about you. That he would rather die than be without you. 
willing to pay whatever cost so that you can know him, be reconciled to him, and live the life that you were created to live. Let me ask you then, does your life reflect that truth? When people watch the way that you live, do they want some of that? Does it look any different? Because you've got to know, like as we talk about this invitation to follow me, Jesus wants to take you somewhere. And this is where he wants to take you. He wants to take you to a place where you can live free, alive, walking in grace, completely secure in the fact that God loves you exactly as you are, not as you should be, and your rebellion or your religious rule-keeping will not sway him. That is a a life-changing truth. When you come to know that, not up here, but here, you will never be the same. You'll still have your days. Don't get me wrong. You will still fail. You will still need to come to God and be like, I'm sorry, I screwed up. But you will never be the same. It will fundamentally change you. And if if that's not your reality, then man, I pray that God gives you the courage to actually look in the mirror and say, man, maybe I don't get it. You know, I, I just got to tell you, like, as a pastor, I'm just going to confess to you. I, I have this, like, inner Pharisee, I think because I grew up in church as a church kid, that just needs to die, but it's still there, right? And so I was preparing this sermon. I kid you not, preparing this sermon, and, and I had to just scrap where I was going with it uh, yesterday because, honestly, so I, I'm reading through this, right? And I'm reading through all these different things, and, 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 and I'm, I'm going to share with you kind of where I was going, but... But where I went with the message was basically, look, we need to be really careful so you really better try hard. Right? It's so easy to miss, so you better start doing the right things and actually walking with Jesus. You know what I mean? And I, I couldn't sleep. It was just weighing me down. And I couldn't, I couldn't figure out why. I was like, why is this thing not coming together? I've got plenty of content. Why do I hate this so much? Right? And then I started just sitting in the scriptures, and it, came, it just like the scales fell off again, which needs to happen to us repeatedly, is that I was, I was pre- going to preach like the anti-gospel. The very thing you don't need is to go do, 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 do. You don't get it, so go try harder. It's not the issue. The issue, if this is your reality, like at times it's been my reality, at, like at times it still is my reality, the issue is that we don't get the gospel of grace. Not really. We're not freeing it. We're not freeing it. Okay, so, so why is this so important? Why are we talking about this? Why, why, why is this just worthy of spending 35 minutes talking about? The truth is, when we read the Gospels, there are trends that we see when people respond to Jesus. And so we find over and over that there, are, there is this pattern. Um, it seems that the poor are constantly responding to Jesus in the right ways. And the powerless are responding to Jesus in the right ways. And he's embracing them. And, and the outsiders, the moral, the social, um, the racial outsiders, those push to the margins, we constantly see Jesus drawing in and them responding. And we do see the powerful walking away and the rich walking away and the privileged walking away and the respect, respected walking away. And so we do see this pattern So if God's love is indiscriminate, why the disparity? And if you want my two cents, I would suggest to you, it's it's not that God loves, his love is not conditional, because that's 
not what the Bible communicates at all. The gospel blows that idea out of the water. But what I would suggest to you is that there's something about money and there's something about power and there's something about success and privilege that blinds us. Or that act as, as scales on our eyes. Or that, that keeps us from seeing our desperate need for God. And if you want my two cents, I think the reason is is because all those things make us feel like we pretty well got it under control. Power makes us feel very self-sufficient. Right? And if you don't think you're powerful, like, I can't speak to your unique situation personally, but collectively, we are a part of one of the most, if not the most, powerful country in the world. Right? I can't remember the exact stat, but we spend like 20 times more on our military might than the next country. Right? We're the ones policing the world. We're the ones picking the fights. Right? We don't, I don't wake up at night with my girls, you know, worrying whether we're going to be invaded and taken over, whether we're going to be bombed. We don't have to worry about that. In fact, the couple times where something like that does happen on our soil, the isolated incidents, it turns our world upside down, right? 9-11 shook us to the core because all of a sudden we were not in control. But for most of us, most of our reality is we're very much in control. We're part of a very powerful country, and I am thankful, I am thankful that I don't have to worry about those things. But if this is true, if it's blinding, then we better be aware of it. Right? Money as well. I know how much we love talking about that. And I love that none of us think we're rich. Right? But I just learned two weeks ago, the average household in Lincoln makes over $50,000 a year, which puts us in the, couple, the top, top couple percent of the richest people on the face of the earth. And I know we don't feel that way because we spend as much as we make. I get it. But that doesn't change the fact that we are. That if I want to go get something, I can go get it. Even if it's just with a credit card. Right? And I think the scriptures point us to the fact that that's blinding. Right? Privilege. Man, do we have privilege. We assume the right to an education. Right? We assume that if we take that education, that we deserve a job. In fact, when there's not jobs, we riot. We boycott. Right? It is assumed. When the unemployment goes up, we're ready to kick the guy in the top office out. Right? That's not a lot of people's reality. Right? But that's privilege. That's opportunity that a lot of people in this world don't have. And so I point all this out. I point all this out. Because it would seem that as Americans, as great as it is to be a part of this country and as thankful as I am to be a part of it, that we are at an extreme disadvantage spiritually. That we are more prone to blindness. And the scariest part is we don't think we are. We don't think we're blind. But we are, oftentimes. Right? And so I, I, I say this because it's, it's worth saying. I say this because I'm, I'm concerned and I love you and I want you to freaking get the gospel of grace. I want you to be free to live in that, but it's going to require for us to lay pride aside and actually see our need for grace with high definition. Because you know what? Grace is not good news if we can't see our sin. It just isn't. Right? In fact, one of the things that we find about the kingdom of God, the one thing that qualifies you is knowing that you're not qualified. And the one thing that disqualifies you is thinking you do. So it requires an incredible amount of humility. It requires that we come to God in our need. And in this is where Christianity and all other religions part ways. Right? To quote Ray Ortland, and I'm done, I promise. Christianity is the unreligion. 
It turns all of our religious instincts on their head. The ancient Greeks told us to be moderate by knowing our inclinations. The Romans told us to be strong by ordering our lives. Buddhism tells us to be disillusioned by annihilating our consciousness. Hinduism tells us to be absorbed by the merging of our souls. Islam tells us to be submissive by the subjecting of our wills. Agnosticism tells us to be at peace by ignoring our doubts. Moralism tells us to be good by discharging our obligations, but only the gospel of Jesus Christ, only the gospel of grace tells us to be free by acknowledging our own failure. Christianity is the unreligion because it is the one faith whose founder tells us to bring not our doing, but our need. And my prayer for every person in this room is that God would help you see that need that he could shatter that pride, that he will humble, humble you, and I pray that it does not take humiliation to get you there. Because Jesus does want to take you somewhere. And it's not to crush you with obligation. Right? It's, not to, it's not to make you into a great religious person. He wants to take you to a place where you are free to walk in the unconditional love of God, knowing that anything that you do from this day forward, good or bad, will not change the way that he feels about you. And to live out of that, to live out of that. Jesus said, right, my yoke, take it upon you, because you know what? My yoke is easy, and my burden is light. And I'm telling you, if you don't feel that, if Jesus, walking with Jesus, does not make you feel free and light, you're missing the gospel. There's so much for you, and I pray you get it as we move forward together. Let's pray. Lord God, I pray for everybody in this room. I pray for myself included that, Lord God, you would strip away those things that blind us to our need for you. The money, the power, the respect, the success, none of those things are evil in and of themselves. But, Lord, we recognize that these are things that can so easily blind us to what you have for us, to what you desire for us, to what you offer us in your Son, which is unconditional grace. Lord God, I ask that you would bring each of us to a point like the thief on the cross who can say, you are king, I don't deserve saving, but would you save me? So that we can find the life that you offer every single one of us. So Lord God, we come before you and pray these things in your name as a community and all God's people said.